welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to dominate your career, then you are in the right place. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. And Monica Marquez, ex-Googler, diversity expert, and senior corporate leader. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Monica Marquez, your host for today's episode. Have you ever chosen a path that you want to follow and you set out with determined commitment only to realize somewhere along the way that you're just not enjoying it? What do you do? Do you keep going or do you make the tough decision to change directions even if there are sunk costs? Well, in this episode, Judith Williams, Head of People Sustainability and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at SAP, shares her perspective and the important life lessons she learned on the economic principle of sunk costs and how it can also be an important career strategy. Judith shares her story of deciding to make a career pivot, leaving her well-established career as an academic professor to becoming a change agent in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Judith has been at the forefront of the culture change movement in technology and entertainment, with a deep focus on analytics and strategies to identify and disrupt bias in social systems and corporate culture. Prior to joining SAP, she ran an organization which consults with startups, venture capitalists, and accelerators on embedding diversity and inclusion into the foundations of their organizational cultures. In addition, Judith also served as the global head of diversity for Dropbox and was also a diversity programs manager at Google, where she directed the unconscious bias workstream and built strategies for recruiting, retention, and the advancement of the company's technical employees. Visit imbeyondbarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Judith. Welcome, Judith. Thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. We are thrilled to have you here. Um, I want to give you as much time to share your story and share all your pearls of wisdom with our listeners um, because I know through your very seasoned career, you have gained lots of perspective in the sense of working for different organizations, working in different industries, and I think with that comes some very unique um, skill sets that you've developed. So without further ado, uh, share your story and what you've learned along your journey and maybe one or two lessons that you would love to impart with our audience. Oh, thank you, Monica. I'd be happy to share a little bit about my story. I you know everybody has a story and you, you get used to telling your own story so many times. So it's interesting to think about, well, where do you dive in? Uh-huh. And I, I have a former career as an academic. Mm-hmm. And so about ooh, 15 or 16 years ago, I decided I no longer wanted to be an academic. Mm. And the most important lesson that I learned at that point, there were two really key things, key ideas. One is the advice that I had been given about how to select a career was wrong. Mm. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is we will often tell young people, do what you love mm-hmm. and you'll be happy. And I did. I thought I love books. I love learning. I got a PhD in theater and performance studies. I love theater. I thought I would be set but I was deeply unhappy as a professor. And Mm -hmm. what I didn't know was that 
I had to choose not only what I loved, but what were the terms of my life that I wanted to have? So who did I want to work with? What mm-hmm. type of work did I want to do? What type of impact did I want to have? Mm-hmm. Did I want to work in a collaborative way or a hierarchical way? I realized that I wanted to be more collaborative. I realized I wanted to have a larger direct impact on the world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see that my work had impact on on not the one-to-one student that you might hear about 15 or 20 years later, right. but direct impact on things that were happening in the world. I didn't want to live an academic lifestyle where you are so specialized that you have to go where the job is. Mm, mm -hmm. You have no control over your geographic destiny. And so when I left academia, I I knew I wanted to move back to California, which is where I had grown up, where I'd gone to high school. And since I moved back, I've worked for a half a dozen different organizations, including some of my own, and I haven't left my apartment. So I am able to you know, have that geographic. So I would say really be thoughtful about the terms that you want to live your life on. Like really mm-hmm. think about the, what kind of impact you want to have on the world, how you want to work, who you want to work with. Do you want to travel? Think about how much money you want to make and what money actually means to you. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, and certainly as I thought of myself as an intellectual who was something above thinking about finances and then I could mm-hmm. have a really creative job and, and, and money would happen. And, and I realized that actually I wanted more things than that. I have an amazing shoe collection, which I never could have had. <laughs> and so you have to understand that it's about the professional success. It's about mm-hmm. the people with whom you surround yourself, but it's also sometimes about what are the material comforts that'll make you happy. So I think that was a really important lesson for me. Mm-hmm. And the second lesson that was really important in making that career change was understanding sunk cost. This was the mm-hmm. most important economic principle to my life. Mm-hmm. Because when I made the decision, people would say to me, oh, but you've already put so much time in. Now you've got a PhD and you've been teaching. And, and why are you, you going to waste all that lost time? And what sunk cost teaches us is just because you put in a lot doesn't mean you should put in more. Because mm-hmm. what you put in is gone. You have to think about, well, what am I going to get out of this in the future? Not how am I going to recoup this past? It's a bad financial strategy, but it's also a bad career strategy. Mm. So I think those were really important lessons for me making that career transition. That is such tangible advice because, you know, I've heard before, it's very similar to you in terms of sunk cost of hearing that sometimes you've got to let go of the good in order to attain the great, right? And so it seems like you really did um, think about the, you know, the whole Um, you were decisive in that way. So I know that a lot of the times when we are coaching um, a lot of our our female clients, they struggle with making tough decisions. And so how did you go about making that really tough decision of, okay, I know I'm doing this. I've invested so much time, energy, and education in pursuing the career that you had. Um, How did you do that kind of um, risk analysis or kind of like, how did you weigh out the pros and cons and then decide, okay, I'm just, you know, I'm making the switch. How did you, you know, what is your technique? What's your tactic? Um, You know, what would, what advice would you give women when they're coming up to a really kind of pivotal decision like that? I, I, yeah, I, I was very unhappy. I think that was one of the things. I, and mm-hmm. I, I had been an academic. I, I had I'd been teaching at a, a university that was really well run. 
Mm-hmm. And I left that university for a university that was much less well run. Mm. And so I knew that I, so I'd gone from working conditions that were tolerable to working conditions that were intolerable. Mm. And I knew there were things about the job that I wasn't happy about. But when I'd been working at a university that had a strong infrastructure to support faculty, it allowed me to have an easier time of it. So, so, so wasn't, wasn't completely content. So I would say that that shift, that understanding that even in the best of circumstances, doing that job, I wasn't happy. And Mm -hmm. then I went to what for me were the worst of circumstances. So I realized how bad it could get. And there's Mm -hmm. something about that change. I think that you can be what I call low grade miserable for your entire life. Mm, Yes. You you can't hold despair. That's that's just not a way to live. So so that was one thing that was very helpful. So I knew at that point that I had to change my life because I couldn't live with that unhappiness. And so I was faced with this idea of, well, do I go back on the academic job market and get another academic job? Or do I make a different change? And I thought about what I had done. I I had tried public universities, private Mm -hmm. universities, universities in different geographies. I tried different departments in Mm -hmm. different uh, universities. And so I knew that it wasn't the department, it wasn't the type of university, it wasn't the the location of the job that was really causing my dissatisfaction, it was something else. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and I would say, if anything, I knew before that I was unhappy, but I kept listening to other people. And right. so I'd say, you have to find that place in yourself mm-hmm. because no one is going to understand what drives you and what makes you content. We can certainly talk to our mentors and our coaches and get advice, but it has to sit well with you. And I stayed longer than I would have because mm-hmm. of all of the people telling me, oh, you should stay, you know, just try harder. So so that's the first thing is to to listen to what's important to you. And the way that I found that voice for myself was I thought about the person that I was when I was 16. Mm. And that girl thought she could do anything. And I realized that I was not living in a way that would have made me a good role model for her. Mm. I was living in a way that my 16-year-old self would not have respected. And I actually thought, well, that's pretty terrible because that was a great kid and she deserves role models that look like her. Mm -hmm. And you know what? The next generation of great young people deserve role models that look like them. And you can't be a good role model if you're deeply unhappy and unsatisfied with the work you're doing. So you've got to think about how do you live up to be someone that your younger self could respect. And for me, that was very compelling. And, and I still check in with that sense of that person that I was who, mm-hmm. who really believed. And I was, I was really fortunate growing up with a family that taught me I could do anything. Mm-hmm. And so if you have this foundation where you could do anything and you're doing something that makes you unhappy, well, that's not success. Right, right. That is such insightful kind of self-reflection that you did. And I think, you know, it is so true that you, you have to, you have to remind yourself sometimes that you have to live it to lead it. Right. And if you're not um, living it, then how are you supposed to step into that and, and lead and be a role model for others? I think that's absolutely fantastic. One of the, um, 
questions I have for you is that you did make a significant transition in terms of leaving academia and going into the corporate world or um, how did you get clarity on what your strengths, your competencies, um, and being able to align it to your purpose in a sense and really then be able to tell your story to these, you know, these corporations in terms of making that transition? How did you go about doing that? Yeah, that, that's, that was actually really hard because I didn't, I didn't know how to tell my story initially because mm. I, as an academic, I didn't actually understand what was going to be compelling to corporate entities. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn. So I did a number of things. One, I started to learn, well, well what is, what is this, bus this business world? I didn't even think it's like a corporation. <laughs> I was like, business. I want to work in business. What is a uh -huh. business? And a friend had said to me once, if you want to understand how business people think, you should read the newspaper that business people read. So I got a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, mm. began to read it and just uh -huh. cover every day. That was that was my practice just to understand mm -hmm. what 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 is this? Right. Like what's right. The of right. and what do they care about? Uh, so that was one. And then I also reached out to friends mm -hmm. uh, and peers who I knew had gone to business school or were working in some of these mysterious business places. Right. <laughs> I, I said, look, I, I need help. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what I want to do. And, and I believed at that point that my rubric for deciding what to do was broken because I had used the rubric that I had, do what you love. It had left me unhappy. I didn't know what to do. So I began to think about what, what do I think would possibly solve some of the problems that I have. And so mm -hmm. one, I knew that I had no control over my geography. So I wanted to go into a field where I could get a new job and not have to move. That was one right. Mm -hmm. Very simple, right? Yeah. Uh, I also knew that I worked in a way that was incredibly hierarchical when I was working with students, mm -hmm. solitary when I was doing research. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to work in a collaborative, less hierarchical way. So I right. knew that. I knew that I really loved to travel. And there was this mysterious business travel thing <laughs> that I was really interested in. And uh -huh. so I was like, I want to travel to be a part of what I did. Mm -hmm. I also knew that as a professor, I, I was really good in front of an audience because mm. uh, that's what I had been doing. Right. Right. Um, and so I wanted to find something that would leverage some of the skills that I already had. I didn't want to have to start completely at the bottom and buy someone coffee. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of what I said. And I, I deliberately, I can make coffee now, but I didn't learn how to make coffee until I was <laughs> much, much older. Um, and so I knew these things. And then I talked to my friends in business and I said, these are the things that I know. Can you help me? And I had a couple friends who said, well, these are the types of jobs where people do some of the things that you want. They have to do these other things that you might not know about. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's really what I did. And then one of the most important uh, support pieces that I got from a friend was I had an academic CV, which is you know, six to eight pages. Right. And he took my <laughs> academic CV and he helped me translate it into a language that people in a corporate entity, people in business would actually understand. So okay. you look at things like, okay, I had run research projects with research assistants. He was like, you manage small teams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> was yeah. like, 
and 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 he said and you know and i had applied for grants and then i had to manage grants and he was like ran small P&Ls, um, right? Like, so right. all of these, because I didn't know that language. Mm-hmm. And so he helped me by having those conversations say, okay, I understand a little bit about what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of things that fill that. So good, you're not being too picky because you can't be that picky at this right. point. Mm-hmm. And here are here are how your skills translate into something that makes sense mm-hmm. or will make sense to a recruiter or a manager who's going to read your CV. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, that's so fantastic. And your story resonates so much with me only because I think we've lived parallel lives. I too um, was in academia before I went into the corporate space. And I was, um, after I got my master's, I packed up and I moved to New York City and I was working at NYU. And um, someone, you know, uh, just again, a referral kind of a, someone in my network happened to be a recruiter at Goldman Sachs, reached out to me and said, hey, I think there's this role that um, would be great for you. And like you, I didn't know anything about the business world or Wall Street. And yes, I lived in New York City, but I'd only been there for a few years. And I remember asking her, and this is going to sound crazy, but I asked her, who's Goldman Sachs? And she was like, do you have any friends who went to B school? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, call them up and tell them you have a potential like opportunity and you're thinking about not taking it. And of course, when I called my friends, the first thing out of their mouth was, you know, I said, hey, I have this opportunity at some place called Goldman Sachs. And they were like, hang up the phone call the recruiter, tell them yes, and then call me back and tell me what the job is. And so that was my story into getting exposed to corporate. But once I said yes, and once I got the job, I found myself in a sea of just extremely smart people, Ivy League degrees. I was not like them. And there was certainly imposter syndrome and a sense of doubt. Now, once you made it into the corporate space, how did you, you know, di- you know did you have any fears, limiting beliefs, kind of imposter syndrome? And if, if so, how did you overcome them or get past them? So what, one of the things, and I, I mentioned this before, is I, I grew up with my grandparents and they inspired in me this idea that, that you can do anything, mm-hmm. but it takes hard work. And so when I was a child and I would get frustrated or, or something was hard, they would always reframe it if uh-huh. I didn't do it. And they would say, well, did you put in the work? Have you done the work? Mm. And so what I realized is, 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 is that anything I wanted to do, it's about how much work are you willing to put in? You mm. put in the hours and work and learn, right? And you think about, you know, that's, and that's how I approach everything, which is, mm-hmm. I might not know how to do it, but I can learn it. The question is not, can I do it? But am I willing to put in the work that it takes Mm -hmm. to actually be good at this thing? And sometimes the answer to that is no. But if it's always about the work, then it's, it's, it's not about you. And then even if you do the work and you fail the first time, Mm -hmm. the answer is, well, let's put in more work. Right. And so that's how I consistently, that's how I looked at the change, which is I have a lot to learn. I have to put in the work. Mm -hmm. And, and that has served me really well. And when you have, as we all do, we do things that that just don't work out or you you have Mm -hmm. a project and you miss something. I look at it and I say, okay, where, where did I not put in the work or where did I do the wrong work? What have I learned? So the next time I can do the right work to be successful. So that has really helped me is that consistently reframing something in terms of not doubting whether or not I can do it, but always understanding that it's, am I willing to Mm -hmm. do all the work? Sometimes it's more work than than we want to do. And that's fair. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if we want to be successful at something, we've got to put in the work. 
That's that's fantastic. And so thinking about a little um, about, you know, putting in the work and getting it done, what are some of your kind of success habits? Like what is a daily ritual that you do that helps you stay on that A game or putting in the work? Like how do you, you know, what does your day look like and what are some of the habits that you practice in order to be successful? Uh, it, it's you know the habits that I practice are you know I, I think I think part of it is is some of the the mental health care that I do and what I try mm-hmm. to do uh, is to do something physical every day and mm-hmm. usually it's walking or running and the reason why I like walking or running is because it's very meditative and so if I do it at the start of the day it allows me to think through what I want to do with the day mm. right? and to sometimes work out difficult problems if I do it at the end of the day it allows me to separate from what's been going on, especially if there's something that I've really been struggling with, then that kind of physical separation. And I've taught myself that that physical activity, it's it's meditative, but it's also deep thinking. Mm -hmm. And so that really helps me a lot. Some of that's my ideation time. One of the the, challenges is the more senior you get, the less maker time you get, and the more manager time you have to spend. And so, you know, our manager time are those half hour blocks where we're talking to other people. It's really hard to dig into hard projects and and think about the strategy or the, Mm -hmm. you know, even execution of complex projects when you just don't get those significant blocks of time to think them through. And so what I find is that if I can get a run or walk in, it allows me to have some of that maker time that's very free flowing that helps Mm -hmm. inform the work that I'm going to do. So I think that's a really... Uh, essential. Uh, it's been difficult recently because I'm in California and uh-huh. uh, we couldn't go outside for a few days. But as soon right. as I woke up this morning and the air was clear again, first thing I did is run. I also get up really early, mm-hmm. uh, and I would get up early even if I if I didn't have to, even if I don't have meetings, because I know that I'm I'm clearest in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important is I try to do the awful task first. So the thing that I'm dreading, <laughs> uh-huh. the thing that I'm like, oh, I do that. Uh-huh. Because that's where you need to be most fresh. That's where mm-hmm. you probably are, you want to cut corners because you don't enjoy it. Right. Uh, and so <laughs> do the awful task first. And then the tasks that are easier, they become almost a reward. Right. Oh, I love that. Yes. Um, and it is that daunting thing where I, I'm the worst. I will procrastinate. And, and in my mind, for some reason, like the more I push it off, then the less time I have to, you know, expend on it. But then sometimes that just blows up in my face. So I think maybe I have to maybe take your habit into consideration and just do those things first and get them out of the way. Do you want to grow your impact as a change agent who ignites transformation in others, but you don't have a proven step-by-step method? Do you want to grow your visibility and influence as a thought leader to inspire others, but you don't know where to begin? The Beyond Barriers High Performance Executive Coach Certification is designed for experienced leaders who want to grow their impact and influence. Join this exclusive community of high achievers, advance your career as a leader, and experience the joy of helping others grow. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com and register for the webinar to learn more. Um, shifting gears a little bit, thinking about, you know, even in, in your various different roles, you've gone from various different companies, you know, like Google to SAP, all of these different organizations. And there's, you know, definitely a one culture shift or sometimes a culture shock, just given the, the current company's culture. Um, 
But how have you established um, or gained access to kind of influential leaders and built relationships in new organizations when you may have gained a lot of traction in one particular organization and have a lot of social capital? Um, how do you do that? What has helped you gain access to influential leaders and build a strong network or community around yourself? I, I, it varies depending on the culture of an organization. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing to when you join an organization is to listen mm-hmm. and much more than you talk. Right. To try to understand the lay of the land, to try to understand whose who's, um, who's agendas are at play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that I think, is, is, is one step. And then to think about, if you're thinking about building a relationship over the long term, Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you you really want initially to show your value. And sometimes mm-hmm. the way that we want to show our value is we do a lot. And we're like, look, look, I'm valuable. I'm valuable. Right. But what we've got to understand is that relationships are reciprocal and that you mm-hmm. also need other people need to or want to show you their value. Right. And so that opportunity to listen is to, to, to essentially get some of that you know, to understand the value of others um, mm-hmm. and not from a, a like, oh, we only care about people for the value, but we all want to, I think, contribute to our organizations. And so mm-hmm. understanding that it's reciprocal. And so you look for opportunities to show your value, but you also uh, look for opportunities to provide others, to highlight others' value or to show their value. Right. Um, I, think, I think those are really important. And then I've had a lot of success in connecting with peers and often I'm, I'm, I'm I just ask mm-hmm. you know, what's it like here who should I talk to mm-hmm. uh, you know what 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 types of you know people are successful here and that's again people will give you that advice and they want to give you that mm-hmm. advice because when you join an organization everybody wants you to be successful you know you're in recruiting you know the costs of, a, of you know that <laughs> hire no yes, one wants that yes. uh-huh. <laughs> um and so if you take that time to listen and to get that advice and then to meet as many people as possible mm-hmm. it's it's really you know, it's it's important. It's one of the reasons why, for my job, I traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now it's yeah. I, I think one of my fundamental assumptions before COVID was that go sit down with someone, be in the same room, break bread, uh-huh. uh, you know, be a human in the same room, and as much as you can, get that FaceTime uh, in a distributed organization because that's what is going to take you through long term. Mm-hmm. It's 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 interesting now that we can't do that. I I, right. I haven't I haven't really I haven't traveled for work in, in six months. Right. And and so those meetings that we would normally have, those sidebar conversations, they're much harder to have. So you have to work harder to check in on people. Mm-hmm. Um, ask them about their work. Mm-hmm. Ask them, you know, is there something I can do that would Mm-hmm. you know, that you've wanted, that you've needed, right? Right. And so that's that's generally been how I've learned about the organization and mm-hmm. learned about what other people need in the organization. That's really great advice. I mean, digging in a little deeper to this kind of disruptive, immediately change of work environment. Um, you and I both know working in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion that, you know, in in a regular utopic work environment, um, you know, uh, just black, indigenous, uh, people of color, color, Latinos, uh, sometimes did have a bit of a challenge because they were underrepresented groups in 
very kind of in, in a lot of organizations, male, white, cisgender dominated um, populations. Um, now that things have kind of shifted virtual and there's a little bit more of a barrier in, t- in terms of being able to have those kind of face-to-face meetings or kind of just those, um, you know, just those great, you know, happenstance run-ins in the hallway. Um, have you seen, you know, any trends or, you know, just just these underrepresented groups, minorities, women especially, being disproportionately um, impacted by this kind of COVID environment? I mean, we've seen the impact in lots of different ways. And, and mm-hmm. part of it, one of the things that we've been doing is a, a remote pulse survey to just check mm-hmm. in and see how different employees are doing. So we are seeing, you know, certainly women tend to be primary caregivers more so than men. And so mm-hmm. we are seeing some differences there. Uh, we know that when you have this kind of virtual uh, setup, when you hear about someone leaving the organization, it has a much bigger impact because mm-hmm. you know that one or two people who leave, it seems like everybody's leaving, but right. that's, you know, <laughs> that's not true. So I would say if we look at the data, we haven't seen an aggregate difference, but what we're mm-hmm. hearing anecdotally, um, or certainly what we're hearing is about the stress on, on women mm-hmm. uh, who are caregivers. We're hearing about uh, interestingly enough, people who are living alone, who are dealing with mental health challenges and loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are hearing about those those differences in our survey, but then we're hearing anecdotally that people are feeling isolated. And mm-hmm. if you think about the way that this started, we thought, oh, it's a few weeks. Right. Oh, it's a few months. Right. Now it's, we don't know. Right. There's and no end in sight. Right. Exactly. And so th- it's it's the realization and so I think that a lot of the short-term strategies that organizations put in place or that individuals had put in place, uh, we're going to see longer term. So we mm-hmm. have, you know, I, we, we're hearing anecdotally mm-hmm. about some differences, but I think we, it'll hit our data much later. So we haven't seen trends yet, mm-hmm. but I believe we will. And a little bit about, you know, as you and I both know, because this is a crisis, right? We have the pandemic um, with with COVID, but then there was uh, definitely increased racial tensions with Black Lives Matter, those types of things. But we know that crisis also creates opportunities. Um, What are the biggest opportunities that you see for um, women of color, people of color, you know, that... Um, as a result of kind of this forced conversation now, um, in a sense of, you know, being able to elevate their, their, their voice, um, what do you, what's, what's your perspective on that? Well, I think there's an opportunity for, for, as you said, the elevation of the voice. And what we see is leaders are listening in mm-hmm. a way that perhaps they didn't listen before. And they are open to a different type of conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see that, that there, there seems to be an opening for greater communication across difference. Mm-hmm. There seems to be an opening for more empathy. And then mm-hmm. what we're hearing for what we've heard from our employees is, is they want more. And so they want to know what we are doing to develop our employees mm-hmm. uh, from underrepresented groups and, and, and not just employees from underrepresented groups. We have you know, all of our employees saying, no, we, we have to not only contribute to these external organizations, but right. we've really got to take a look at what's happening in, on our teams. Why aren't we getting more diversity in our pipeline? Why aren't we seeing more diversity in leadership? So I think that it is an opportunity to really have that conversation for people willing to say something, we have to do something differently uh, Mm -hmm. because this is not okay. 
mm-hmm. I would say that was not the kind of frank and honest conversation that we were having a year ago. Mm, right. I think that's extremely insightful. And I think it's, you know, almost a, a call to action for individuals to be able to kind of, you know, use this opportunity to make sure that they are speaking up and speaking out so that, you know, those who are truly now open to listening can hear those messages and we can start addressing um, addressing those issues. Um Thinking about the, uh, again, talking about this, the shift in, in work environment, what advice do you give to people in terms of, you know, the agility? Like, how have you, in terms of having to be nimble and thinking about, okay, the work environment has shifted, probably I would, you know, assume that your, you know, 2020, um, you know, goals for your organization and your team were kind of out the window after this happened. Um, how did how do you stay agile? How do you stay learning and, and ahead of the curve in these situations? I don't know that we, we managed to stay ahead of the curve. I, I <laughs> think that we're just trying to keep up, right? We're trying right. to keep the car on the rails. <laughs> um, I, I, I think I think part of it is to think about do you have an overriding philosophy or or mm-hmm. or infrastructure for solving problems? And for me, and, and, and this might be true of you having had that Google exposure, is it's always mm-hmm. the data. So I, I always keep myself very mired in the data and because the temptation now when there's a lot of attention is to do everything and see what sticks on the wall. And what we really have to do is have the discipline to say, look, if our data tells us that things have changed, then we need to pivot. But what we've seen is, is you know, anecdotal information. We're going to use it. Mm-hmm. Because there are some things that we have to do in the moment. So you know, we did have to have t- town halls in June and July because of what was going on. We have started doing sharing circles to give uh, our employees a space to come together around these very difficult topics. Mm-hmm. But in terms of our core strategy, which was based in the data and solving some really key problems, we mm-hmm. still need to solve those problems. And so our infrastructure is still valid and our strategy is still valid. And what we mm-hmm. need to do is to have the discipline to say, yeah, it's very tempting to pivot and to go another direction. Right. But the strategy was solid. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you know we don't react or respond to immediate needs, but we had a solid strategy and we're going to continue to drive on it. Right. The solutions may change, but the strategy and the and the and the kind of the focus that you had is is still there. That that makes absolute sense. Um, we like to ask our podcasts all uh, our podcast guests this question all the time in terms of thinking um, about women and accelerating their success. Um, what advice would you give women, you know, in this kind of current digital age and this environment where things keep changing and shifting? Um, what advice would you give them to, um, that would help them accelerate their success and stay, uh, like you said, either, either keep the, the, the car on the rails, keep it on the track, or, uh, or getting ahead of the curve a bit? So I, I, I think one of the things that we see um, among women is this idea that the work is enough and, mm-hmm. and the work is really important, but you also have to make sure your work is visible. And the more senior you get, the more your job shifts to making your work visible and then making the work of your team visible. Mm-hmm. And especially in this type of moment, you have to make your work visible. 
And if it's not visible, you know, it's that tree falling in the forest and anyone here, that's right. what happens to work. And, and I've seen so many men who will spend the time talking to managers and everyone about how great they are and sending out the email about like this great success that they've had and mm-hmm. you know, having the meeting to be like, here's this great thing that I did. And women are shaking their heads going, yeah, but, but what about me? And it's like, you've got to understand that part of the job is talking about the work. Mm-hmm. And if it's uncomfortable for you to talk about yourself and the work that you did, a mind hack that you can do is to think about your, you're talking about your best friend. Because for most mm-hmm. of us, if we have a best friend, we can tell you everything she's done. We are the <laughs> best champion in the world. No one is better than that best friend. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about your own work, talk about your work like you're your own best friend. Mm, I love that hack. Yes, because I think that is one of the biggest roadblocks or barriers that we see with women is the the art of self-promotion and not being able to tell their own story. And in some cases, because they don't tell their story, uh, when they have the opportunity, they've never crafted that story uh, to share it. So I completely agree with you and love the advice in terms of visibility and visibility matters. Um, and with that, Thank you so much for your time on uh, the Beyond Barriers podcast. You have given some really insightful and great advice that I know our listeners are going to be thrilled to get. Um, And with that, I know that we are going to have listeners who will reach out and say, hey, I'd love to get in uh, contact with Judith or connect with her. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? To reach out to me on LinkedIn, I am on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and so I, I usually try to respond to messages on LinkedIn. I'm not on LinkedIn every day, but I, I do go through them every couple of days. Fantastic. Judith, thanks again for um, sharing your wisdom and your story, and it's absolutely inspirational, and we hope that many women will, um, will learn from this. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit imbeyondbarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all resources for each show, including the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.